Life Cycles Part 2. And last time, what we tried to do, what we tried to do is we try to find the meaning and the understanding behind the various life milestones. So last week, last time we talked about like what does Judaism have to say about birth and pre-birth and what happens to the child. And you very interesting stuff. Um, and obviously the mitzvah that we conquered very significantly was the mitzvah of bris milah, of, of circumcision. And what's the meanings behind it? What's the ideas behind all those rituals? And what we found was that this mitzvah is in fact replete with meaning and symbolism. And in effect, it's a mitzvah that kind of uh, encompasses the the entire mission of Judaism. Basically, if you look at just the, this one, that's why the Talmud could say about that mitzvah particularly that this one equals the rest of the Torah combined. Because it provides kind of a snapshot, an insight into everything, uh, a window, if you will, into everything that the Torah really wants from us. So that's where the child is already eight days old. So it's, it's interesting that at a time where the child is literally a week old, we already have a grand vision. And like the blessing that we say, the blessing that we say at, uh, there's two blessings actually that are said at, more particularly, uh, precisely, there's three blessings, four blessings, sorry, that are said <laughs> at a, uh, at a, at a bris meal, at a circumcision. One of them is Bore Peregafa, the blessing is said on wine. One of them is Baruch HaTashem, the blessing to do the bris mila. And then there's two other very interesting blessings that we only say one, one in, at one ceremony. And that is, um, to enter the child into the covenant of Abraham, our forefather. And I think this, this kind of is indicative of a lot of different milestones in Judaism where we're taking a child and we're integrating him into something grand. I think that'll be part of the uh, part of the theme that we'll see today. You know, a child that at eight days we're already saying we're already saying that uh, the blessing we're saying is that we're we're entering him into something, into a pact, into an agreement, into a fraternity that was already it's already you know thirty eight hundred years old. Abraham, we're invoking Abraham, thirty three hundred years old. Um, so I, I think, and as we progress with the milestones, we see more and more the child is being integrated into something much bigger. And it's beyond the scope of uh, his life and his parents and his family and his community. It's, it's you know, it's 3,800 years of, of history, of accomplishments, of tradition. So that's a child at eight days. That's where we ended off last time. because a child has been set up on Sabbath. I've heard a rabbi say to me that they chose that's why eight days. Eight, um, the eight days because the child has deserved one Sabbath as a Jewish child. Uh, no, that's, not so much for health reasons. I mean, for Jewish reasons. Mm-hmm. What's exactly. interesting about you, you point out the health reasons. Well, I wasn't even getting on that point. I'm, that must be something God knew. But one of the rabbis had mentioned to me it's because he compared life cycle of seven. Yeah, so we mentioned that last week that there's that there's that there's seven plus one. We mentioned that uh, briefly. La- that seven corresponds to a cycle 
you know, where we find it many times in, in Jewish in Jewish practice, where seven is like a complete cycle, and one more than that is kind of supernatural, and that would be the same the same idea. That's what we have. Let's say the the Sheva Brachot, the seven days of celebration after a wedding. It's also it's it's it, you know it, it uh, signifies a certain level, certain measure of completion. Um, yeah, absolutely. But um, what was I going to say? You were going on. I was going on seven days. Beyond seven days. Health. Oh, health. Um, so what's interesting is, is that it's it's been proven, and the Jewish people have been saying it for years, but it's been proven that the best day, the time where the blood kind of settles in the child, so the healthiest day for a child to have a circumcision, is on the eighth day. You know, in hospitals today, if people uh, ask for, they ask new parents, would you like your child to be circumcised, to do it in the hospital two, one day or two days or whatever. But it's actually been proven that the best time, the most optimal time for a child to be circumcised is when the blood kind of settles, and that would be at eight days. I wonder if somebody told it to insurance companies. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's not that significant of a medical procedure that, uh, that really, you know, with today's uh, technology and advanced knowledge in medicine, it doesn't really make such a big difference. But in ancient times... You know, they were doing this, and, you know, it's, it was a very dangerous procedure, you know. And when the Torah tells us to do it at eight days, it's because eight days is actually the optimal time to do it. That being said, there's a perspective that has been very popular in this, in this area, but a, a corresponding area is that, you know, wh- what came first? There's the argument, what came first? Did the fact, did the physiology come first that the child is most primed to have a circumcision at eight days? And therefore, God said, do the Brit Milah, do the circumcision in eight days? Or is in fact the opposite is true? That God wanted, for whatever reasons, God wanted uh, the eighth day to be the day of the circumcision, either like he observed one Shabbat, or because eight is, 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 is something, a number which is associated with certain meanings, and therefore, children are more, most primed to have a circumcision on, uh, on day eight. Anyone here is with me? It's interesting, like milk and meat. So we know that uh, Jewish law uh, obviously forbids consumption of milk and meat together, but after someone consumes milk, uh, and they know they could right away go to meat. As a, later. Well, it depends. Well, no, that's for meat, for meat to milk. If we go from meat to milk, you get six hours. Well, there's certain kinds of cheeses. There are those who have a custom to to wait even after cheese. But typically, if someone has a coffee, they can go right away to the steak, right? provided they don't have the actual taste in their mouth. They might have to wash out the mouth. Maybe if you wait 15 minutes, but either way, you can go right away. As opposed to if someone has the steak. They don't have to wait uh, between, some have a custom of three hours, some have a custom of one hour, some have a custom of five hours, five and a half hours, five hours and 31 minutes, and six hours. That's basically all the customs. And they actually found out, physiologically, that uh, there's a certain enzyme that is used to break down meat that would be a a certain health vulnerability for someone to consume uh, dairy after after consumption of meat, as opposed to the other way around. So you could have your ice cream, and then that enzyme is not necessarily in effect, and then you could right away go to the consumption of 
uh, of the meat. I'm not, you know. That's interesting. Yeah, but did that come first? No. Was it because the Almighty knew that the order of consuming meat and then dairy is unhealthy? That's why he said not to do it? Or the other way around? Because he said not to do it, therefore, physiologically, that's the way he set it up. That's the interesting, and it comes up with a lot of other areas of life. They say, oh, they find out that, like circumcision, circumcision prevents a lot of diseases. Right? Is that why the Almighty constructed us to do it? Or is it because the Almighty constructed us to do it? Therefore, he said, there's also gonna, he's going to top, uh, top it off by making it also have other benefits as well. But he wanted it for covenant to all people. Well, that's true. That's true. Oh, yeah, but, but I, I think it's short-sighted to say that... God wanted it for a covenant, but really God wanted it because of health reasons. Anyhow, that's uh, an idea. Are you going to answer the question? Well, I, I think that it's perspective. It's a perspective. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to say for sure that, that, it's, that, it, that, that it's one way or the other, but I think it's interesting when you find a lot of examples of things that are set up just right. Like all kosher animals, for example, all animals have two vital signs. You have to cut both vital signs, make them dead. All kosher animals have both vital signs at, on, the, on the throat, and all non-kosher animals have them split, one in the throat, one in the neck. Right? The, the idea being is that when you, when you slaughter a kosher animal, it dies instantly. As opposed to when you slaughter a non-kosher animal, it takes the length of the, of, of, of the, of the throat and neck for it to die. Very interesting. Is God saying to us, uh, we want to give animals a pain, painless death, therefore only eat those kind of animals? Or is God saying, these are the kosher animals, hence the way they're going to be set up is that it's going to be a more humane way to kill them? What came first? Right? But you see a lot of these things. There's certain, like obviously consumption of pork, we know, has, a, you know, it's not a healthy thing. The pork eats schmutz, it eats, it eats dirt, it's, 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 you know, the, the pigs, it's what the pigs eat. You're going to eat that as well. Uh, is that because it's not kosher, or because it, it's it, it, because it's not healthy? Therefore, it's not kosher. I prescribe to the to the theory that the Almighty set up the world to be to work very well hand in hand with His instructions of how to use the world. Means the instructions came first, and that was the blueprint for the physiology. Interesting idea. Okay, so the child has a circumcision. What's next? What's the next milestone? What's the next building block of, 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 a, of a fine Jew? Pidge, College fund. <laughs> 529. <laughs> oh, so we mentioned last week the Pidgeon of Ben. Uh, we, mentioned that, we mentioned it last time. What else? After the Pidgeon of so The child's 30 days old. He has a Pidgeon of Ben. He has a Brismila. What else? He's got the Jewish name. He's got all that uh, history of what happened to him, but what was prescribed for him in utero. Everything's fine and dandy. What's next? So most people think it's bar mitzvah. Now we mentioned when I have when we had the parenting class that the Talmud says something very interesting. The Talmud says that if a child, when the, the the day the child learns how to speak, the day the child learns how to speak, the father has to teach him something. What does it have to teach him? He has to teach him Torah Siva Lanu Moshe It's a verse in Deuteronomy, which means Torah was instructed to us by Moses. And it is a heritage for the Jewish people. And if the parent does not teach that to the child, it's as if he buried them. Very strong statement. Hmm. You have to teach it, and if you don't, it's as if you bury them. 
I think the lesson is like this. I think it's important for us to realize that with regards to milestones and stages in a person's growth, we cannot actually forget about what actually is going to contribute to the child's Jewish life. The Torah makes a tremendous effort on education. Well, at three years old, the Orthodox sought to send the children to um, get a, their religious education. They cut their ears, the payers. The upsharon, yeah. They, I mean, that's part of the Orthodox. Hasidic. Well, Hasidic, yeah, that's a tradition. It's a milestone, isn't it? It's that? a tradition. I'll get to that. I'll get to that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Bring up the stuff. It's, this is a open forum. <laughs> we, every, everyone uh, is, is encouraged to contribute. But before a child turns three, usually they don't know how to talk. The first words that they have to be taught is about this verse. And what does this verse say? Torah. We were given instructed, instructed Torah by Moses, and it's a heritage for the Jewish people. Once again, I think this is another stage of integration of child into a much bigger picture. We tell them about Moses. Moses lived 3,300 years ago. That's a long, long time ago. But Moses is not just the person. It's the idea. We're teaching the child that we got something special. We got a Torah. It was given to us by Moses. Moses was a VP. What does a VP mean? A verified prophet. Moses was someone that there were millions of people that witnessed him him receiving prophecy. The entire Jewish people at the foot of Mount Sinai heard the prophecy, Moses, Moses, I'll come up to the mountain. And this incredible individual gave us a Torah that he received from the Almighty. And as a child is about to speak, right, a stage of his physiological, his or her physiological, physiological development is a very important time to grab onto this opportunity to try to enter him or her into this, into this idea. What does a child know about Moses or Torah? Two, three years old, they don't know about anything. The point is that we have to let, plant an idea and let it germinate and let it percolate, and let it develop, and let it progress. And if we miss this opportunity, what happens if someone doesn't do this? They miss the opportunity, right? There's a certain stage, a certain milestone that's missing. And you cannot miss, we cannot afford to miss milestones in Judaism. And the Talmud is so serious about this that it's as if you bury the child. There's a certain element, a certain building block of their progression of their development, of their integration into Jewish life, and Jewish practice, Jewish tradition, that's lacking. <clears throat> and, that's, and that's something not to be taken lightly. And once again, we see that as the child is very young, right, we're thinking very big. Right? We're talking about uh, a child who's being circumcised, we're putting him together with Abraham, a child's learning to speak, we're, we're telling them about Moses, we're thinking very big, right? Go big or go home. Jews are driven. Jews think big. Jews think big. And, it's, you know, with our children, as a child is being developed, we're trying to, once again, open up their eyes to what it means to be Jewish. A quick, quick question. This quote from Deuteronomy. Yes. Is it supposed to be taught in Hebrew or English or both? Any other language? Um, I think it's the idea. It's the idea. I so teach my children. I teach my children the verse. Um, my kids know we have a song that we sing with, our, with my kids but I also teach them about the idea you know we had a guy Moshe or Moses and he got to give us the Torah on Mount Sinai and even though the kids know what that means kids know what Torah is he can't read Hebrew a little bit this direct recognition of, 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 of the Hebrew alphabet but it's the idea you know and it's planting an idea 
and you might not see the fruits of your labor till many, many years later. As well, with everything we were talking about parenting, parenting, you don't you don't see the fruits of your of your efforts till till many years later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, and I saw that. I saw my grandfather writes in one of his. Uh, my grandfather is a master pedagogue or pedagogue. I don't know how you pronounce that word. And he wrote in one of his letters that parenting is about what you know. What the perspective has to be is what the child is going to look like when they're thirty. So yes, so yeah, a, a small child, all they care about is toys, and all they care about is candy. It's all they care about, um, but. We're implanting ideas into their unconscious and subconscious that will take time to develop, but we will see the, we'll, we'll see the benefits. Okay, so that's how child learns how to speak. Now we have the idea uh, at three years old, there's a tradition. Now it's important to distinguish custom tradition from law, from Talmud, from things that are more serious, things that are more binding. Like the bar mitzvah is, is a real thing. Uh, this custom tradition of, of upturn is a few hundred years old. It's not, yeah, not to, not to belittle. Do you folks know what I'm talking about? I don't know. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll share what it is. Basically what it is is that if you see sometimes, I know with my kids, you see boys uh, that have long hair that look like girls because, uh, you know, even if they're wearing blue, but it might not be blue enough or whatever. Oh, your daughter is so adorable. And because there was a tradition where, uh, especially in Hasidic, uh, Hasidic communities, so think of Eastern Europe, uh, where they would let their children's hair, boys, remember, boys' hair grow long until the age of three, and then they would give them the first hair to the age of three. Uh, my mother comes from a Hasidic background, so therefore we do observe this, even though my dad comes from the most Lithuanian and German background. They're not into that stuff. Uh, it's a tradition that was pretty much isolated to Eastern Europe, you know, so think about Poland, Russia, Hungary, and... I well, I don't remember, but I was told that they didn't take me to have my hair cut until I was about three years old. Exactly, that's it. And nobody knew why except for some reason my great-grandmother insisted. Yeah. She also didn't know why, but <laughs> it's tradition. Oh, it's tradition. Yeah, so I, I just it's thought so, they were just lazy to take me to the, lazy <laughs> to take me to the stylist or something else to take some money or something. So, um, so this tradition is 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 venerated in the Hasidic community. In my particular family, because I have this uh, mixed background, uh, therefore, like I'm not. I don't say I wait till the child's three. I wait till the child's two and change. Almost three. I don't like wait to the birthday. I wait till when it's convenient to make a party and they give the kid a haircut and give him some candy and whatnot. And um, the what reason, the uh, well, the reason why so there's a few there's a few reasons because remember we have a tradition. It's not you can't necessarily nail down one reason why it might be a composite a combination of a lot of reasons. Because we know a child at three is once again another stage of their development. They learn how to talk, recognition of letters. Um, so therefore, part of the tradition was that you give the kid a haircut and you leave them payas. You know, some people have payas. I don't have payas, but some people have payas. Uh, especially, like we said, in Eastern in Eastern European Jews, like Hasidic communities, they have to payas. And that was like a time where payas, as in the side locks. You see people side locks, curls. So some of them have them like this, these long twirly ones. I have cousins like that. Some of them like have them curled behind their ears. Uh, I have kids like that. 
uh, I don't have any myself. My dad doesn't have any. Um, so once again, that's another another custom. That's not a law. It doesn't say anywhere. The Torah only f- forbids shaving this area. Um, but there's no positive command. In Deuteronomy, it says not to shave the certain areas of your of your head, not to shave. Those were uh, painting customs uh, to, sh- to shave their heads or to do like that, to shave like this over here. So therefore, there's certain areas where the Torah forbids shaving. The big thing about the Mexicans now. I went into a Mexican barber shop here about three months ago. I didn't get a quickie trim. Yeah. And all the Mexicans were getting shaved. They're around here, except this here. Yeah, so... The whole all soccer teams now in Brazil. They'll have probably go straight to hell. <laughs> well, no, it's a, no, it's a Jewish. It's a Jewish thing because um, the mit, the mitzvah was the prohibition was to not be like the Gentiles, not be like the, the pagans of 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 old would specifically shave this part. So that was like a, a mark of paganism. So the Torah for, 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 so forbade it. Of the customs, so Eastern European customs, the whole uh, Hasidim black suit and the also custom holder. Well, yeah, so um, it's, um, so, wait, so, so the, so the payas, so this is the ear, it's called the payas. I mean, payas in Hebrew, um, uh, you may know it from one of the words in the Hatikva, Befa'ate Mizrach, means the corner, the, the corners of, of the east. The, the payah, the payah, the word payah means corner. So this is, the Torah calls this the corner of the, of the hair, therefore it's called the payas, payas or payah. And the, the Hasidic communities have adopted a tradition that not only are we not going to cut this area, we're also going to leave a substantial amount of hair to demonstrate that we're not cutting it, we're actually leaving it. You know, we're doing the opposite. It's not a, there's no mitzvah, there's no, it's a custom. It's a custom. So yeah, it's... But my question about other customs... In yeah, I'll get to, I'll get to that. Oh, okay. uh, but therefore, this custom coincided very nicely with the... Uh, three years where the child has a significant hair, you, yeah, and then you cut the rest of their hair, and then it kind of like it's like when they receive their payas, so to speak. And like I said, it's a custom, and that's one of the reasons why. There's another reason why a child learns how to read. So therefore, it's, it's kind of like a culmination of a child learning how to read, and they read the Aleph, the Alephet. There's another uh, reason brought down for this custom, this you know several hundred year old custom, and that is that there's um, a mitzvah in the Torah. Uh, agricultural mitzvah in the Torah in Israel, that the first three years of a child uh, of a f- of a fruit tree, first three years of a fruit tree, you don't touch the fruits. It's called arla. Three years, you don't touch the fruits. Uh, it's like sanctified, so to speak. And similarly, we know the children are comp- or humans are always compared to a tree. And the Torah says so. Ki adam for example, that's a verse in the Torah that man is a tree of the field. And there's many correlations that there has to be roots. And a person, what we see, what we see, the, the, what we see externally is all about what we see internally. It's a reflection of what we see internally. And if someone doesn't have strong roots, well, then they're going to knock down. Right? If someone builds a, uh, a, a, an edifice without a strong foundation, well, it's very likely that a wind will, push, will, will, will knock them off. So, too, if someone builds a human, you want to build a human, you have to make sure there's strong, strong foundations. You know, don't go too far ahead of yourself. Don't build too bombastic of a tree unless you have the roots to support it, etc., etc. So, therefore, to uh, you know, to parallel the Arla uh, agricultural law, uh, they they modeled the uh, upsharing haircut tradition after that. So, those are one of the, those are the reasons given. Those are the, those are the various reasons given. Now, with regards to other customs. Uh, I think that it comes, it, it's born out of a, uh, a 
resilience is probably the best word, or resistance. Resistance to, uh, to at least externally adopt uh, modernity. What I mean by that is that the Hasidic uh, garb, so they wear, uh, some of them wear hats like that. And I think the reason, the, the reason why they started wearing those hats was because it was really cold in Russia where they lived. And even in Russia today, you see people wearing those, uh, those what, rabbit fur hats. Yeah, but they, yeah, but they, That's because it's cold. Yeah, they wear it in the summer. Oh. You go to Borough Park and yeah, you say, so, how does it do it? Right? Yeah, so, and then I, you know, I, I guess what happened was because they were, that's what they all wore. And if, <coughs> I don't want to get too sidetracked with Hasidic, because I can give a whole class about what Hasidic is and what that's the roots were. It's very interesting. Um, but part of the theory of Hasidut is the development of a community as a method of building Jewish vibrancy. You know, in, in Judaism, as we all know, at least historically, it's all been about scholarship. And the scholars were revered, and the ignorance were, you know, the ignoramuses were, weren't vilified, but they, they just... Frowned. They were frowned upon. You know that that, that wasn't valuable. We, in the Talmud, like the most insulting thing you could say about someone was rake, it means empty. That was literally the most insulting thing that someone could be said, could be said about someone in Judaism because that's what we value. That's what we're built upon. We're built, you know, we're built upon a tradition of wisdom, of intelligence, of of of, of study, of passion for education. That's what Judaism had always been. And during the Dark Ages, you know, in, in certain parts of Europe, where there was extreme poverty. Extreme anti-Semitism, and there was indeed extreme, uh, uh, you know, ignorance, and it was a very dark time. In you know, obviously, Judaism, Jewish history doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's always a reflection of what's happening surrounding them. But there was a very dark time for, for you know for certain uh, certain you know certain Jewish communities, and the the Hasidic answer to this problem was to redirect a certain focus away from scholarship and towards prayer, towards community, towards um, singing, towards having, uh, having uh, prominence of a, certain, of a Rebbe, of a, like the Hasidic Rebbe. The idea being is that you could be you know, a Polish peasant who barely knows how to read, and you went to work at the age of seven. You didn't have the opportunity to become a scholar. And you work really hard. But on Shabbos, you get dressed up like everyone else. There's a sense of community. And you go, you, you go sit down by the tish. Tish means like a table. And you have the rabbi and they tell stories and they sing and they drink and they eat, they eat potato kernel. And, it, and it's a certain element of community. And it keeps, it kept people Jewish. It's pragmatism. Well, it's, for sure it's pragmatism. Uh, but it, it kind of saved Jewry. You know, if you look at, at, at you know, the 19th century and what happened to Jewry in the 19th century was the worst century in, in probably since the first century. Uh, since the destruction of the temples and the exile, it was terrible. You know? That would so be another that? interesting class. Because... To see if Jewish people through the early... Set. I'm giving but, what you're talking. You could more than likely get into a good conversation, but we're not at that. Yeah, well... well, well I'm just saying for ideas. I yeah, think. the 19th century well, saw a quarter of a million Jews... I don't want to... Uh, convert to Christianity. And those were the Jews who didn't have that sense of community. And, you know, in, in retrospect, we could see that the Hasidic movement saved Jewry. In Eastern That's Europe. It, in Eastern Europe. Because they, you know, what were they going to do? You know, you, uh, 
you're part of a community and suddenly you say you want to shave off your beard and shave off your pass and adopt a non-Jewish name and what, what are all your friends are going to say? What's going to happen? You're going to miss out on the community aspect? So I kind of kept the Jews together in, and this is what, what great Jewish leaders do. Great Jewish leaders understand, great, well, great leaders everywhere understand the circumstances. You know, the great book, uh, Good to Great. It's right here, Good to Great, Jim Collins. It's uh, one of the best uh, business books, so um, where he highlights certain companies that are successful versus other ones that presented with similar market opportunities but were less successful. Good to Great, Jim Collins. Perennially on the uh, on the bestseller list for business books. So one of the first things that he writes is that um, great companies, or he calls them visionary companies, are companies that are able to face the brutal facts. You have to know what you're in. Don't be, uh, don't be delusional. Great Jewish leaders, great leaders everywhere, they cannot be delusional. If you know that there uh, you know, has been a dip in attendance to synagogue, in, in engagement in Judaism, in Jewish excitement, Jewish vibrancy, Jewish participation, you have to come up with something. Now, that being said, it's always very dangerous because like the Hasidic movement, Hasidic movement was innovative and any innovative, uh, uh, any innovation in Judaism is always going to have its detractors. Always. And even the, the, even, even the great ones, like Hasidic, like Hasidic and we look in retrospect, Hasidic, Judaism, Hasidic the Hasidic movement saved a large majority of, of Polish, Russian, and Eastern European Jewry, Hungarian Jewry. And, uh, but at its time, it was the most controversial thing. And the great leaders of the time said they're not called Hasidim, they're called Hashudim, which means suspected, the ones that should be suspected. You know, it says, and uh, it was a huge battle. You read about it. Either way, back to your question. Sorry, we're getting too distracted. Back to your question. So I think that part of the fabric of the idea of Hasidism and the idea of Hasidic community is not um, deviating from the model of this community. So therefore, if it's, a, if it's in dress, if it's in speech, we know that even today there's hundreds of thousands of Hasidic Jews in America that's, that, that their first language is Yiddish. Yiddish. Who speaks Yiddish now? Do you speak Yiddish? Can we speak Yiddish? Yiddish? Yes. 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 I'm from a generation of my family who doesn't speak Yiddish. Right? I can speak a little Yiddish, but it's a dead language outside of Borough Park and Williamsburg and Curious Joel and all these places, and in Israel some places. Yes, yeah, so, but, but it's a relic of the past. It has been. Outside of, because there is a resistance to deviate from what the community is based upon. And it's based upon a certain sense of community and a certain unyielding to external forces. And that's why it was successful, and that's why it saved, it saved and that's why the tremendous uh, storms that caused tremendous havoc in the 19th century didn't impact, or for, to a large extent, didn't impact city communities because they were shielded. They were built to resist that. And even today, you can say, why do you need the hat? You don't need the hat. And you don't need Yiddish, you know? You could study Torah in English as well, or in Hebrew as well. You know, it's words that, you know, the, the Almighty doesn't care. But it's that's what the community was based upon, and that's and that's what uh, worked worked for them very successfully, and that's why they they maintained that. So it, it, I'm sorry, is Chabad and Hasidic the same thing? 
Yes, Chabad is one of the sects, what they call sects or Hasidic groups uh, of Hasidism. Chassid, Chabad was, is Russian, so it's a little bit different than the Polish, Hungarian uh, uh, groups. And Chabad is also a little bit different in their philosophy, later, their style and philosophy. Later, uh, Rabbi uh, Schneerson, he was the head of Hasidism. That's correct. Uh, of the Chabad uh, sect. Is yeah, when Lubavitcher? they and Chabad is the same thing. Okay, it's the same thing. Okay. Yeah. 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 So when they opt uh, left en masse Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe for United States in early 1900s, right? Uh, with the migration of the... I don't know the migration no, of... The, the whole Lubavitcher movement moved from Western Ukraine yeah, Poland, they, all the way to Brooklyn. Yeah. And, and skipped the Holocaust. Lucky for Yes, yeah, so and not not so many of them did. Um, not so many. A lot of Hasidim died in the Holocaust. You know, they were built like in Israel. There's one. Of the, there's a major Hasidic movement called the Bells Movement. They have these funny names. The names of their towns. One of them is called Satmer. Satmer is the biggest one. But it's why the reason it was called Satmer is because it was it, it was it was originated in a city called Saint Mary's, of all names, uh, Saint Mary's. So they called Satmer. Satmer. Yes, some city, I don't know, somewhere. That was the origin of the, uh, it's, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of funny that they would have like such a name like St. Mary's, uh, but that was the name of the town, they, so they called Satmer. And there's a name of a town called Ger and Lubavitch and Bells and Vizhnitz and all these names of little towns where they had a Rebbe and they got really big and really popular. So right, you know, they're still today, there's still hundreds of thousands of Jews like that. But Bells, for example, uh, they were almost decimated in the Holocaust, and but now, like 50, 60, 70 years later, they're as vibrant as any other groups. You know, tens of thousands and they, uh, of 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 adherents of or members. And so I think it was my mistake. I somehow equa- equated the Lubavitch's movement with uh, Hasidic movement, but apparently that is only. A well, it's it's a south. Yes, it's a little so, bit uh, different. Uh, I thought that's what uh, it's a what little bit different because. Um, as we mentioned, Hasidism was somewhat of a departure from the traditional view of wisdom as being at the forefront of Jewish life, while Lubavitch slash Chabad, it's the same thing, they were the least, um, the, the least, or they made the least leap away. So the least controversial. Well, to, no, they're probably the most the, controversial, but no. the least of a departure from the wisdom as being a focus. Like the word Chabad. Chabad is an acronym for Chachma Bina Vadat, which means Chachma means wisdom, Bina means insight, Dat means knowledge. I mean, the, the Chabad of, of, of Hasidic wisdom, Chabad is at the center of it. So Chabad is the least of a departure from the traditional perspective of Judaism, of scholarship. And they're all over the country, all over the world. Yeah, and they also have the messianic fervor, which was somewhat of their undoing. They, they, you know, there's the the fact that they don't that Rebbe died and they haven't replaced him. And there's this, you know, there's internal conflict amongst amongst that group as to whether or not he's still alive. There's still there's still the messianic uh, uh, sect or, or uh, movement within Chabad. You know, they still think he's alive. I mean, they went they went awry. Really, some of them did. Uh, wow. They think he's still ar- alive. They think he might still Mashiach. They think he's greater than Moses. They think he's God. You know, there's really some, uh, some you know issues that they're trying. They have to iron out um, well, amongst themselves. Jews are not calling themselves a completed Jew. Completed. A completed Jew. Yes. Yeah. Because they accept Jesus. 
No, forget about it. But think about it this way. I'm saying there are those that have legitimately raised the question that, listen, you know, there are some people within the Chabad movement that still claim that either the Rebbe who died in 1993 or 94 is still alive or he's going to come back. And the problem is that we've actually had this before. Like, we've been down this road before Mm -hmm. where there's been someone who was kind of special and valued and had lots of followers and then died the followers who claimed he was Messiah, he died, and they said, oh no, he's actually coming back, or he's still alive, or whatever. So it's a dangerous precedent. Well, that was also a similar uh, precedent, was it the root of the schism between Sunni and Shia and Islam, right? Exactly, and, and, that's, and it's, it's very bad, it's very bad that the, that, the, that the kind of the gem, or the diamond of the Hasidic movements would have such a conflict, such turmoil, uh, internally, but also externally, where you know this is a group which is, you know, right now I think it's it's been it's stable, but is in great danger, you know, if they don't move on from this Rebbe and they don't address the uh, the people within the movement that think he's alive or whatever whatever they say, then that you know there could be a problem down the road, be a major problem. You know, you have kids today that were born after the Rebbe died, never knew him, never met him, never saw him. And they still think about him as either being alive or being Messiah. I've had arguments with, with people like, like, you know, people kind of lose their mind, you know, because they were so sure. Lubavitch Hasidism has had a tradition from time immemorial that they would have seven rebbies, and the last one of them would be Mashiach, would be the Messiah. Well, they consider Schneerson as a. Yes, now Schneerson is the seventh rebbe. His father in law was also Schneerson, was the previous rebbe, because he married his cousin, whatever. He had no kids, okay? And he, you know, there's debates. There's so much debate about this, but uh, there's, there are those that claim that he claimed upon himself to be Mashiach. Before he died. Before he died. He or he didn't himself. quell the, uh, you know, the chanting that they say, uh, or they sing the song, Mashiach, they, they would sing it for him and he would dance along or whatever. Uh, so, and it's ingrained within the movement this idea that the seventh ones be Mashiach and they're very messianically driven. And now he had no children, and it's been 20 years, and they haven't uh, anointed a replacement, and like we'll never do that. How is it different from the 10th Imam of the Iranians? Also, Messiah, he is hidden somewhere, he will come and, and say. How is it different than yeah. Jesus? I, don't, I have no idea. You know, And there are, not just you know, to be fair, there are responsible voices within that community that are doing everything they can to try to straighten this out. Because if you look down the road, this can only go bad. And the Hasidic movement has to have a leader, has to have a Rebbe, and has to also not come up with these strange ideas. You know, There are those people that think that he's alive and he's coming back and this and that, he's greater than most. Like, you know, don't, lose, you know, don't lose what you built. You well, know? Christianity has come up with a substitution. You have a pope temporary discharging duties of Messiah, right? Uh, well, the, yeah, we, we're really getting at it. Really yeah, but uh, anyway, that, that's the danger. Okay, so... so I'm sorry, I up with the It's okay, I'm very happy. So I went to Payas, then I went to the Hasidic, and then I went... Uh, that's what series. I personally enjoy about the discussion. It's good, it's good. It was... <laughs> I like that, because actually, um, it's, it, was a, it was a shorter class today than... Uh, okay, let's continue. Okay. Uh, so let's continue so we say a child at the age of when he learns how to speak it's important to start not lose that milestone the Mishnah tells us there's other milestones before Bar Mitzvah at the age of five to teach them Torah 
to teach them the actual written Torah, right? The books of the Torah. Uh, because that's the time where the child learns how to read or can learn how to read, and it's a time where they are ripe for learning that. And then uh, at the age of 10 to learn the Mishnah, age of 15 to learn the Talmud. Point being is that we cannot wake up when the child is 12 and a half years old uh, and say, okay, your bar bar mitzvah is around the corner, now it's time to learn about Judaism. It has to be an ongoing process. It has to be from literally from day one, from the bris, from 30 days, child is at a speed, age of three maybe, if that's the custom, age of five, right, to latch on to these opportunities and milestones because if you miss it, you kind of miss the boat. You miss the train. And it's very hard to make that up. And I think that, you know, when we talk about bar mitzvah, what does the word bar mitzvah mean? Well, it means son of a commandment, but it means someone who is responsible for commandments. Uh, and in Jewish law, we're told that someone who's bar mitzvah is now liable and obligated and responsible to be a Jew like an adult. And that means adoption of mitzvahs and adoption of responsibilities and moral obligations and, and they're capable of ownership of, of land and of, and of items and they're, they're, they're an adult for all matters. And they're Jewish. For all legal matters. For all legal matters, and yeah. ecumenical matters, right? <coughs> Sorry, what was that word you said? Ecumenical. Religious. Uh, religious. <laughs> you got to dumb it down yeah, for me. seriously. Yeah. <laughs> well, drop the thesaurus. <laughs> Uh, sorry. Words, I was told that in the olden days, whenever they were, is that if a parent died, a father died, they're, they're like first first hand to a mother if their father died for some reason because people didn't live as long in the olden days. So well, that the child after bar mitzvah helps to. Well, a traditional. Tradition, okay, forget tradition, let's go on with. Uh, no, but the, the, you know, it was true. That for many years, the, you know, at the age of twelve or thirteen, was the end of, of someone's Jewish education, uh, but that was out of necessity. Where it was on the to eat and they had to join the farm. But uh, historically, we view bar mitzvah as a beginning. Unfortunately, I think today, it's actually the end. Mm-hmm. It's very unfortunate, and I think that perhaps the solution to it. Is how we have to reframe what bar mitzvah actually means. Bar mitzvah is not about the ceremony; it's not about the event and the gifts and the whatnot. Reading from the Torah, it's about the, as we mentioned earlier, it's another step of someone's introduction into a certain world. Now they're an adult. Now is when they start actualizing all that they learned previously. Parent has an obligation to teach a child. Parents have an obligation to teach a child at a certain at a age, you know, to about ideas about Moses and Moses of the Torah. At the at another age, about about mitzvahs. Uh, at the age of five, to actually teach, teach, start teaching them about about about, about Torah and, and teach them about the law. Then and then at the age of thirteen is kind of where the proverbial torch is passed on. Now you're doing this for your own. And I think that uh, you know, in, in today, like I said, it's very unfortunate. Bar mitzvah typically marks the end. Not typically, obviously not. There's uh, many, many exceptions. But for many Jews across America, uh, the bar mitzvah is usually the end of their Jewish education. And I think that the way... well, And we know when someone stops studying and stops being involved, stops being engaged in their Judaism, their risk of maintaining that and perpetuating that to their children and making that an integral part of their life is greatly diminished. 
So I think that maybe if we were to learn about more about what bar mitzvah means uh, as being an introduction into a, you know into into being a Jew and being a Jewish adult, and also take the steps to ensure that before the child's bar mitzvah, they're already engaged in 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 active practice and engagement of Judaism, then that risk of bar mitzvah being the end point as opposed to the beginning point. Uh, would be lessened. Is, is there any commandment about a uh, ceremony, or is that just a traditional thing? That well, it's it's tradition that every time we have a, a milestone, we celebrate. You know, the birth is a milestone, and there's certain blessings that we say. Uh, there's uh, the bris, obviously, Peter and Ben. There's certain blessings that we say. And there's a blessing that we say. A parent actually says there's a blessing traditionally given to a parent at the time of the child's bar bat mitzvah. And what that actually means, it's kind of why you're know, washing your hands. It's ironic, kids. Washing your hands of the child's responsibility. You know, before a child uh, is bar mitzvah, they're the responsibility of the dad, <laughs> the parents. And as the child now kind of he receives a torch and is on his own, the parent like washes hand, washes his hand. And the, the traditional blessing is said as it's not said with the actual name of God, so it's like a half blessing, but it says Baruch Shepatrani Mochoshalazeh. Say that again. Baruch Mon which means I'll translate that. Patrani, uh, which means that I'm uh, I'm uh, uh, obviated or I'm no longer responsible for the sins of this one. The idea being is that a child before there's a great debate whether a child before they are bar bar, bar mitzvah is obligated in mitzvahs or not, obligated in Torah or not. There are those that say the child is obligated. It's just that they're actually not enforced. And those that say a child is not obligated at all, but there's also an opinion that says that a child that the parents actually obligate in the child's mitzvahs. But either way, that would change when the child uh, has to accept responsibility for their own actions at the age of bar about mitzvah. So the parent uh, washes their hands. You know, they're they are no longer liable or responsible for the child's activities. Well, that's something when he has talked about the um, fasting, you know, for Yom Kippur, for instance. You know, when a child is younger, the child might eliminate eating dessert for Yom Kippur. But if the child gets older, once they bar mitzvah, it's their choice now. Am I going to fast or not fast? Is that what yeah? But that, that's that's one example. Yom or Kippur, Bar-Mitzvah. but you know, in, in in traditionally, it was about all mitzvahs. It was about wearing tefillin. It was about studying Torah. It was about everything, everything. They they're an adult. They're 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 with regards to practice of mitzvahs. They're like everyone else. You mentioned in the parenting class so that there was tw- age twenty was. When they were responsible for themselves. Yes. Yeah, so the the distinction between that is twenty versus thirteen is that thirteen is the age where they're responsible for their own actions vis-a-vis humans, human courts. For example, if you're thirteen years old, you could engage in commerce. Right. If you're twelve or eleven or ten, then for you to actually have ownership on something. Uh, you can't just, you can't just, uh, you can't just engage in commerce and have real ownership. You have that. You have, might have to have a steward over it, pulling up a truck, or someone who's oversees it. Like for example, in a case of where you have, uh, it's like what we would have today. If you have uh, uh, orphans that receive an inheritance, they the court appoints someone to oversee it for them because they don't want them to squander it away. But at the age of thirteen, they're adults. They can, you know, own their own, you know, own own their own uh, property and own their own. Objects and items and engage in commerce, but at the age of thirteen, and that's how we view that. 
you know. Uh, but as opposed to the, the 20 is, what, is when God starts judging people. You know, because 20 is when someone is actually mature. Maturation is very similar to the age that we give at 18 or 21 for certain things. And uh, that's why at 20, uh, the obligation to get married and have children. We know that uh, there's a mitzvah. The first mitzvah in the Torah is to have children. So are we suggesting uh, that the child at the age of 13 should start thinking about having children? <laughs> That's a bad idea. Well, they <laughs> not necessarily children. Right? Hormones are raging, yes, but uh, <clears throat> that mitzvah kicks in at the age of twenty. A mitzvah getting married, having children. So yes, twenty is another milestone, and that's when God starts judging people, whatever that means. We don't even know what it means that God judges people and how He evaluates people. But that's also a milestone. But thirteen is as, as well for us. So for us, for practical persons, for for civil, for criminal, for law. That we can that, that we as a court could engage with, thirteen is a milestone for that as well. Yeah. Is it different? I'm just being at your home for Shabbat that one evening, you know, just the men were obligated to go study. So for a bar about mitzvah, I know typically it's age twelve for girls. Why? And is it just some? Uh, it's because we uh, girls. Are they obligated to continue to study too? And how? Are they obligated at all? That's a question I just started thinking because you always hear of the boys. You know, that the boys were taken in to study in the Jewish learning schools where the girls didn't. And I can remember my grandmother saying that she wanted to learn. She hid in the closet while her brothers were learning. <coughs> so, a um, few questions here. So first of all, bar and bat mitzvah traditionally has been 12 for girls and 13 for boys. And that is due to the, uh, you know, girls hit puberty earlier. So the girls mature earlier. And that's well known. And documented, and therefore um, their age of maturation is earlier, and that's why they're ready for their obligations earlier. And it's the same thing, boys and girls. The, the same thing happens to boys at 13, happens to girls at 12, and that is they are entering the fraternity of Judaism. They're now responsible for their own Judaism. Uh, and the parent has to make sure that before that point, the child is ready and primed, because otherwise, you know, it's like sending off the kid to the uh, uh, you know, to the to the to the races or to the uh, or to the test without being prepared. The child, the parent's job is to prepare the child to be ready for that point. Uh, but that will be twelve for girls and thirteen for boys. And yes, after that, the, the, the you know the girls need to learn as much as boys need to learn. That being said, there's uh, you know you, as you pointed out, uh, most of the yeshivas are are, are for are for men. Uh, not to, you know not to say that there aren't yeshivas for women as well. There are. Uh, typically, men have more of an em- emphasis on the more abstract parts of the law, uh, like 97% of all mathematics uh, uh, postgraduates are men. It's more of a manly thing to do. Some women do that as well, uh, but typically, and women are more of the practical, so like uh, practical halacha, women have a great emphasis on uh, as you know, more of the hands-on practical. That would be the distinction. Uh, but either way, after uh, after bar about mitzvah for a boy or a girl, their obligations kick in in full gear. Uh, so that's uh, obligation, moral obligations, uh, mitzvah obligations, uh, and but perspective obligations. You're an you're you're an adult Jewish male or female, and now you are like you know you have to actualize all that you were taught and be you know you're part of a tradition. You know your grandparents. Everyone who's Jewish today has many, many generations of sacrifice 
to thank for that. You know, if you're Jewish today, what it means is that your grandparents, wherever they were, name me a country where they were, they had to go through a lot to maintain their Judaism, to maintain their Jewish identity, to maintain their Jewish practice, and to teach that to their children. So I think that that's a perspective that a child has to really understand. You know, what it means to be Jewish today, it means that there's generations, literally generations, hundreds of years of persecution, of uh, pogroms, of blood libels, of uh, restrictions on practice, restrictions on commerce, of uh, being marginalized in every which way, socially, politically, economically, of expulsions, of inquisitions that your grandparents and your antecedents went through for one reason. So you should be able to maintain your Jewish identity. You know? So that is, you know, I think it's a, a perspective that should be given to every bar mitzvah child, just what history, and not only history on the macro scale, but on your individual history, your parents and grandparents, what they all went through so you can maintain your Judaism. And so you can be openly Jewish. And you can be proud to be Jewish, and you can identify as a Jew. You know, we take for granted what we have today in the United States. Uh, but just read history, any history book on, on Jewish life in, in Europe, or even in the Arab countries, over the past thousand years, fifteen hundred years. It was one disaster to another. Uh, last century was called the century of death, because from 1900 to 2000, uh, 120 have lost 187 million people. Yeah, and, and as recent as there, but, you know, going back every hundred years, you know, there was, um, the Jews were not lived, allowed to live in England for 500 years, a thousand yeah. years. Uh, Switzerland, France, we were expelled from many times. Spain, obviously, Spain and Portugal, Inquisition, whatnot. Germany, thank you, we know what uh, we went through with Germany. Czechoslovakia, every country, you know, that the, the, the annals of, of, of Jewish history are just replete with episode after episode of, you know, during the bubonic plague, there were more than 200, 200 Jewish communities that were slaughtered because the Jews, the Jews invented a potion uh, to kill all of, uh, all of Europe. 200 communities. That's just, that's just one episode. You know? It's insane what our parent, grandparents endured. Because of their Judaism, and and, and and how and how and how they were, uh, well, any country you bring, there's there's, there's examples, uh, and I think it's important for a child to realize at the age of thirteen, this is your history, this is what it means to be Jewish, this is what your grandparents dedicated their lives for, and gave up so much, sacrificed so much, so you should be able to experience your Judaism, and it's. I think they want to keep up with the Jones. I mean, I certainly was not one of those people. I mean, I, feel I, mean, I wasn't keep up with the Goldbergs. Just, yeah. I mean, do you guys do some crazy celebration? No, I, I, th- I think that there is room for a celebration, but I think that the perspective has yeah. to be that it's a celebration because you're at the beginning of something, not the conclusion of it. So, Just like we celebrate marriages and we celebrate births, they're beginning of something. So it's a very and it's and it, of, of bar, bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah. So do we view it as a celebration or as a test? I think it's a celebration. Which you need to pass in order no, to I think it's a celebration. It's a celebration, but it's a celebration at the beginning of the marathon, not the end. But it has nothing. Does it? I thought bar mitzvah was 
is the idea that you reach the point that you're able to be called up for the first time to say the blessing over the Torah, to say the blessing. Because you're because you're an adult so now. That's what I thought. Because the you're idea an adult now. Was forget the pomp and circumstances and leading other parts of a service. Just having your name being called up by you or whoever is leading a service, um, Leslie, daughter of, and of you know so and so and so and so. That the idea of being called up—that is the bar mitzvah and saying. Well, that is that is that is a manifestation of the bar mitzvah. The bar mitzvah is the bar mitzvah. You are now an adult. You're responsible for. You're a Jew like everyone else. As a result, you'd be called to the Torah. You could lead the prayer service. You know, you're obligated mitzvah. It's 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 that's a manifestation. What do you mean? That's a it's a symptom of. It's not symptom. Symptom is a bad word. It's an outgrowth. It's an outgrowth of what it means to be a mitzvah. Oh, it's so, not the so core you idea. So you, so you technically, according to Judaism, you don't have to. You don't have to. You're a bar mitzvah once you reach 13 and you have gained through the steps of going to, from your parents growing up and then you do some Talmud and Mishnah and you reach 13. It's like he could give me a handshake. I could get a handshake. Congratulations, you're not bar mitzvah. But signifying as a Jewish person, you have the opportunity to be called and recognized mm. to the Torah and say the blessing before, because Dan always says that when he rabbi it's the first time he's going to now lead the blessing before mm. and read it from the Torah. I'll, I'll, tell, you, uh, I'll tell you something very unpopular, um, something very uh, disturbing. Okay. You ready? Sure. <laughs> if someone doesn't have a bar mitzvah, they're still bar mitzvah. They're still bar mitzvah. Why do they have adult bar mitzvah? I had one, and I learned, I read that, and I was just like, that was stupid, because I was already no. one. Well, because... <laughs> it's different, because I'm a conference. And I didn't get the party for my parents, because I was, you know, 40 years old, so what was No, the but I also think that the, the idea behind an adult bar mitzvah is... A, to give people a ceremony, because most people don't know that. You think that it has to have a bar mitzvah for something happens. But also, I think it's, 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 a, it's a recognition of a certain entrance into a certain life mode. So if someone, let's say, has been uh, uh, an absentee Jew for a while, then it's a nice thing to, to make a recognition of the idea that they're, they're now having a bar mitzvah. They're now, once again, entering a certain, a certain mode of, of lifestyle. Of learning, but, perhaps? A learning, of observing, of practicing, of perspective, of everything, of being Jewish, whatever that means to be Jewish, everything that it, be, everything that it entails. And uh, I think, so I think it's a positive thing. But if someone doesn't quote-unquote have a bar mitzvah, they're still bar mitzvah. Right? Bar mitzvah is a recognition of a certain reality. Right? Okay? Now you just explained in a way that I wasn't familiar with. Well, that's awesome. the same thing that's as a girl. Anyways, here I am. But, but then they say, years later, was it 80 years old, where a man, if he wanted to talk about ceremonies, we talk about milestones before when we started, mm-hmm. that at 80 years old, a man or woman, I suppose, at this day and age, is eligible for another quote. I, I think is that's just a creative way to get rich old Jews to donate to uh, the UJA, <laughs> probably. <laughs> so it has nothing to do with anything that was never... Bar mitzvah means you're an adult. You could have, you're required to do mitzvahs. That's what it means. That's what it always has meant. And ceremonies are nice. And I think that if we could add more ceremonies, it's wonderful. And if, you know, if, if that helps people be more involved in Judaism, they're wonderful. But there's no, 
feigned, there's no source, there hasn't been a tradition for more than 50 years to have 80 or 83 or 73 or anything or like that. Or maybe at that point you might have a grandchild who's coming of age and you can share in the... Maybe, I think it's a nice thing. These are all nice things. These are all wonderful things, but it's not, it's not substantive. Right? It's like a Valentine's Day invention of the marketing industry. Yeah. So, yeah, I just want to just dial back a little bit to your discussion of um, all of the obstacles and the genocide with respect to being a Jew and educating a child about that. Um, it seems to me that's a, sort of a two-edged sword in the sense that even though there's not a genocide, even though we, at least in the United States, can freely practice Judaism, I don't think anybody would say it's easy to be a Jew. It's a lot easier to be a Christian or to be a non-believer, especially in Western society. There's no question about that. I mean, this is a Christian country. I mean, let's just be straight with that. How, so you can play that up and you can talk to your child about that, but still the sparkly, easy way out, you know, is Christianity. Mm -hmm. So how, how do you keep a child within the sort of Judaic fold, especially in, in America or something else like that, when there's, it's just easier there's anti-Semitism. It's not as blatant as it was. There's Jewish stereotypes. If people, so how do you do that? See, who doesn't love David's question? Well, that's a it's question. such a, it's such a, yeah, yeah. He asked like he, he asked a very deep. Okay, so I think like this. I think that. Um, I think that when I when I said uh, when I highlighted the fact that a lot of blood, sweat, and tears went into making you Jewish, I think that's one part of really, like we said, teaching the child about the big picture and the history of the, uh, of Judaism. I think that's an effective method for someone, let's say, that wants to abandon Judaism, for example. If someone, God forbid, wants to abandon Judaism, and God forbid, God forbid, God forbid, uh, convert to Christianity, right? Someone else wanted to do that. So, what would you tell them? What would you? What would? What strategy would you employ to try to maybe convince them to at least explore the possibility of of remaining faithful to their faith? Uh, so, I think what you would do is you would tell them, listen, what it what the fact that you're Jewish today. Um, is because of all the suffering that your grandparents went through. And you leaving that is really invalidating all their martyrdom. And that puts tremendous pressure on them to say, Jewish guilt, to say, listen, your grandparents gave up so much so you could be Jewish. Are you going to just throw that away without even examining the possibility (laughs) Of maybe you know maybe it's maybe there is something to it maybe Judaism is worth something maybe my parents my grandparents weren't insane and there really is some value in uh, in, uh, in in you know this way of life so that's uh, I think that would be the method you would use if someone wants to completely uh, uh, you know run away from Judaism I think that with regards to the think, reality yeah, I don't think it's more of a converting I think it's more of just walking away from it in ter- in terms of n- 
I, I don't think many Jews convert to Christianity. It's, I think it's just walking it just dies away from a religion. dies a it peaceful dies. death. Yes, but I think that at the time, I think there is an element of crisis at the time of Bar Mitzvah. I think no one's going to deny that. If we deny that, we're actually denying the realities. And like great Jewish, like great leaders, as in the book Good to Great, which I would highly recommend by Jim, Jim, Jim's, uh, James C. Collins, um, we cannot lose sight of the fact that as a religion, we are going through tremendous crisis today in America. And I think that we could point to Bar Mitzvah as being a point of departure from Jews from uh, of Jews from Judaism. I think we can't deny that reality. Would anyone deny that reality? Of course. People co- start getting older and they start getting involved with more kids too. Well, that as well as college. well. But with kids today, with kids today, typically not not obviously there's so many exceptions and for sure. But it, the overwhelming majority, probably majority, we can safely say majority of children who go through bar mitzvah, that is the last. Jewish or significant Jewish event that they're going to celebrate. Maybe they'll have, uh, you know, one uh, uh, a Jewish wedding or a rabbi officiating or something. Maybe yes, maybe no. Maybe they'll wear a white kippah for the wedding, right? That's about it. So I think that perhaps this is perhaps perhaps also of our mitzvah is a time of crisis where it's important to kind of wake up the kid to say. Make sure that you don't have this hostile attitude towards Judaism that a lot of kids have. A lot of, a lot of negative. I know that you meet adults. A lot of them have had not necessarily had the best experiences, you know, in, in Hebrew school or whatever. Right? It's a reality. We know this is true. I think it's also. A, I think there is potential for raising the fact of the sacrifices that were made so that he could, he or she, could maintain their Judaism. Uh, but yes, I wouldn't think that's the only method. And yes, it's much easier. Of course, it's much easier. Do you think it's yeah. easier for Jews to it's much assimilate into American society? Of course, continue, that's... and to continue to keep their Judaism and their, for their kids to keep their. Judaism? I, I think it's possible, but I, I don't think it's going to happen unless they ensure that it happens. You know, there's plenty of of Jewish kids wearing kippahs in Harvard. It, that's a reality that didn't exist a few, you know, hundred years ago. It's possible, you know. There's Jewish lawyers and you know observant Jews who wear kippahs and and you know and maintain all the Jewish law. And they're Jews like Jews that were two thousand years ago, and they're still integrated in American Jewish life. And this this is a reality that's brand new, it hasn't been around for so long. Doctors and lawyers and the people that are at the top of their field, and you know, and it's possible, and I think it is possible. Uh, but I I think we cannot lose sight of the fact that. Uh, with children who, especially reaching bar mitzvah, it's a time where we have to make at least the best effort possible to ensure that this is not the end of the Jewish uh, uh, involvement. And I guess one way possibly it could work out with some families is to, to do mitzvah and you know, do mitzvah as a family as opposed to have a child join another group. That, that would be family. an effective method, absolutely. And I think, and I think, but I also think that um, if we were to graph out the best possible way to do it, it would start from when the child's very young, two or three years old, and they would already be involved. And they wouldn't be wake up at 12 and a half and say, now it's time for your bar mitzvah lessons, where they're not involved at all. And it's just a little, a little oasis of Judaism that they'll have over a life bereft of Judaism, unfortunately. I think it would just be the family kind of living, breathing it, and walking the walk. Itself. That, yes. It's yes. And also there's a sense of that we're a small number there's something special about us, so there's a, 
So, pride. So, yes, these are all tactics that I would use because in a, in a, you know, in a time where we're in a situation where a Jewish child has been exposed to Judaism very minimally, you would want to impress upon them what, I think, A, the pride, what it means to be a Jew, you would teach them about Jewish accomplishments and Jewish values and Jewish, you know. But also, I think that maybe, maybe, I said perhaps, uh, the tactic of saying, your grandparents gave up so much that you should be Jewish, don't discard, uh, don't discard it without a serious consideration. Well, what about the assimilated families where you have, you know, one town said Jewish and one town said not, and to say to your child, your parents, your grandparents, I'm talking about today's life, yeah. you talk about assimilation and such, you don't have two parents Jewish Listen, that's a Jewish. Re- that's a reality. I mean, yes. The Jewish, but you can't say to your no everyone. It's not your grandparents. You can't say to your children. Your grandparents gave up so much. If one parent's Protestant, the other. Listen, listen. That's you're describing. You're describing. You mean generations have given up? Not I said your, your parents. Family. When I say your parents, it's 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 proverbial for your oh, antecedents. Sorry. Um, but uh, but I, I also think that's the reality. I, everyone's dealing with this today. You know, reality of, of, of the past 20 years of, 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 of Jewish life has been that there are lots and lots of Jews that have one Jewish parent, one non-Jewish parent, and that's the reality you have to, that you have to deal with. And I think if we're going to be uh, making the efforts in trying to rejuvenating Judaism and rejuvenating Jewish involvement in Judaism, we're going to have to come across with that reality. And that's something that we're going to have to, we're going to, have to deal with it. And that's, there's nothing we can do about that. Wrong person. I thought Dad was sitting there. <laughs> okay, so that's the Bar Mitzvah. Okay, so I think that maybe the next stage, we have adolescence. And we know that adolescence is a tumultuous time in a child's life. It's a time that's typically marked with rebellion to a certain extent. It's a time which is marked as well by seeking an identity. It's a time where the parenting of when the child was really young is going to come out to the world. So if the parents had a very warm, open relationship with the child at the age of 2, 3, 5, 6, that will probably be manifest when the child is 12, 15, 17 as opposed to if the parent was very strict, wasn't very open, wasn't, uh, didn't have a very positive relationship with a small child, then the child will typically uh, be a rebel, you know, won't be open with the parent. And, you know, these years, uh, the teenage years, are years, are formative years in a child's development. Uh, they are presented with new challenges that they had uh, not experienced as, as children. They're also presented with new opportunities. Uh, and in Jewish philosophy, we say that child at bar mitzvah, uh, you know, it's kind of the beginning of puberty, beginning of adolescence, that's a time where the child gets the Yetzer Tov, which means the positive inclination. And you say, wait a minute. If you look at a six-year-old, all they want to do is make their parents proud of them. And you look at a 13, 15-year-old, all they want to do is do whatever despite the parents or do something against the parents. That's the reality. That's when they're rebelling. That's when they're adolescents. That's when they're going through a coming of age. And we view the Yetzer Tov as the, the, the capacity for someone to make decisions. That's what it is. A small child, they're impacted by their instinct. So if 
you know, behaving and doing what's right, doing what the parents want, is going to get them the most attention. Well, that's what they do. Uh, and a child who reaches 12, 13, 15, they're going to do things which are antisocial. They're going to do things which get them negative attention. They're going to do things which seem to be against what would seem logical. And I think that in, in, uh, in Jewish philosophy, we view this as the child giving, being given his or her tools of life. And the tools of life that we're granted are the capacity to make decisions. And the capacity, when confronted with multiple factors, what's right, what feels good, what I want to do, what distinguishes myself, all these factors, we have to kind of organize them and systemize them and come to one coherent decision. And that is when the child is uh, endowed with all these factors, and that obviously creates a certain uh, 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 tumult in their life and a challenge for the parents. And once again, this is a time where we start seeing the fruits of the investment that we made in our children at an early age. And also, it's a time where the tremendous challenges of a child and of the parent are going to uh, be centered. So that's adolescence. We have also, after that, I think we could talk about love for a little bit. Um, I just uh, recently encountered a certain part of the Torah that we have in uh, Genesis, Genesis chapter 24, the first time we hear the word love in the Torah. And uh, I think it's significant because it's the first time we hear the word love and maybe that is illustrative of what love actually is. You know, all too often when people get married out of love, they get divorced out of uh, disdain. And what happened? You know, love you know, the love that they thought they had, or maybe they actually did have, dissipated. So, uh, yesterday I was reading my kids part of the Genesis portion at the, uh, uh, at the end of chapter 24. So we're talking about uh, Isaac. Isaac is seeking a spouse. Abraham sends, I don't want to get too bogged down with the whole story, it could be an entire class on its own. Abraham sends his servant Eliezer to go find a spouse. Eventually he finds Rebecca, and he negotiates that Rebecca will come back to Israel with him. They go back to Israel. She falls off the camel. A whole story there. Uh, and the verse says it like this. And Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother. He married Rebecca. She became his wife, and he loved her. This is the first time it mentions loves in the Torah. And thus was Isaac consoled after his mother. So uh, what, the first thing that jumps out at us is that, you know, Isaac's mother has been dead for some time now, Sarah. And two times in this verse, when we're talking about Isaac marrying Rebecca, his wife, we mention Isaac's mother. It's like the, uh, the, the mother-in-law that you never met for Rebecca. Why, what's so significant about Sarah vis-a-vis Rebecca that it's so integral for us to mention her twice in the verse that talks about Isaac marrying Rebecca? Well, maybe, but yeah, well, she wasn't forgotten, but why, but why specifically here? Why the link between Sarah and Rebecca? So the, the Midrash, brought down by Rashi, provides us with a tremendous insight. The Midrash says is that when Sarah, when Sarah lived, there were a few miracles that existed in her merit. One of the miracles was that when she would light candles on Friday night for Shabbat, the candles would not be extinguished till, till the following Friday. It was a miracle. 
because this was her mitzvah. We know that lying cow is a women's mitzvah. And therefore, in her marriage, it would last the entire week. What happened? Sarah died, and the miracle ceased with her. Uh, another miracle was that there was uh, a certain sense of spirituality as manifest by a certain heavenly cloud that descended upon her tent because of her, and when she died, that disappeared as well. And the verse points out that when that Isaac brought Rebekah, his wife, into Sarah's tent, meaning Sarah uh, started uh, filling, uh, I'm sorry, Rebekah started filling Sarah's shoes. He married her. What happened when he married her? She lit candles Friday night. What happened to those candles? They also lasted to the following week. Hence, uh, Isaac was consoled for his mother uh, with Rebecca because he know, he recognized that Rebecca had the same qualities, the same characteristics, the same merits, the same righteousness that his mother Sarah had had because the same merit uh, was granted to her. And, and right over here, right in the middle of all this discussion, we see that Isaac loved Rebecca. We have the marriage on one hand, we have the love on the other hand. So I use this as a, uh, an insight as to what the, how the Torah defines love. The Torah defines love as recognition of another person's qualities. When you recognize someone else's qualities, you'll love them. Isaac understood the qualities of his mother. He was there. He grew up with her. She died. There was a certain lacking that he, that he felt. Now, he didn't have that kind of person in his life. He married Rebecca. Rebecca had the same exact qualities, right? And then he loved her because he recognized those qualities. And I think with regards to our own personal lives and, of course, with our children, it's very important for us to teach them about this idea. The idea being that love is more than standing. I know this is platitudinal. I know everyone knows this. Everyone says this. But I think it's also important um, for us to realize that the Torah has these ideas. The Torah teaches uh, them, us for a re- uh, them to us for a reason. You know, people fall in love and they fall out of love. You know, and divorce is so prevalent, unfortunately. And I think that as parents teaching children, but also as parents living their own lives, it's important for us. When we talk about marriage, courtship, love, dating, all these parts of a person's life, it's important for us to keep in the focus of what is going to be a stabilization of a relationship, namely love, Right? What's gonna uh, keep it going? And that is recognition of character. You know, you tell, you know, you, you, we. I'm sure every one of us has had this experience where we have a friend, uh, a close friend, or maybe an acquaintance, and we see them getting involved in a relationship that we could see is toxic for them. I see nodding. I see nods. Everyone not? Is there a nod from everyone here? Right? Because we have more of a perspective, right? That we're not infatuated. Right? We see someone who's infatuated and they think they're in love, and then we, we could foresee with certainty what's going to be the result. And that's why uh, the Torah tells us listen, you know, Isaac married Rebecca. He didn't quite love her yet. When did he love her? He loved her when he recognized her character. That's when he loved her. And I think that's a sobering attitude for us 
in our relationships, but also with our children. You know, you want to teach them about love and about marriage and about courtship and about dating and all these things. And it's, it's important for us to have this perspective. There's obviously more to talk about. Uh, we know that the marriage process, uh, what marriage means, why we get married. Uh, so we have um, the marriage process um, is also viewed as another uh, element of, of, of someone's Jewish milestones, even though we think of it as a relationship milestone. But indeed, uh, we, in Judaism, we view Adam and Eve as being two elements of one whole. If you read the book of Genesis, just right at the beginning, just, you, you'll, you'll notice Adam was created more than once. And you'll notice that when it says that Adam was created, he was created male and female. Wait a minute. Adam, one individual, is male and female. How is that possible? So the Talmud in, in Tractate Subos uh, breaks it down for us by telling us that the Almighty originally created Adam as a single individual, composed of ma- masculine and feminine, feminine elements, and then subsequently was separated as to do two distinct entities that are to be reunited as one. So... This is like the overarching theme with everything the Torah says about marriage. The Torah says, for example, uh, therefore, this is in Genesis, I think it's chapter uh, I don't know, one or two or three or something, right at the beginning. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother, he shall cleave to his wife, and there shall be one flesh. The idea of two individuals, two different identities, uniting into one, being one flesh, taking two and making them one. Once again, it sounds platitudinal, and it is, because that's, that's what the Torah tells us about it. And that's the, that's the attitude that we have to adopt if we want our marriages to be successful. Uh, Adam, is, Adam and Eve are part of the ceremony of a Jewish marriage. Uh, the blessings that we say at a Jewish marriage. We say, uh, delight, I'll translate it, uh, I'll do the uh, translation. Uh, uh, delight this husband and wife just as you were praying to God, uh, just as you delighted uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden together uh, and in, in yesteryear. And we put Adam and Eve on a pedestal of the prototype of a marriage. And even though Adam and Eve, they had their share of issues. Let's just read Genesis. They had their issues. They had their arguments, had disagreements. But there's a certain element of the marriage of Adam and Eve that is so crucial for us to model our marriages after. What happened to Adam and Eve? They were one, they were separated into two. Right? Adam said, this time, this is a bone from my bone, this is a flesh from my flesh. To this woman I will call Eve. Right? He, and then he married her. He had an attitude of Eve being a part of him. Physiologically, they were once one. They were separated into two. Now they're reunited as one. The attitude that we have to have in our own marriages is that we are united as one and we're going to acclimate as best we can. Because the challenge of marriage is taking two identities and morphing them into one. Because that demands compromise. It demands us giving up a little bit of our own identity, of our own individuality, and morphing into a single identity in a single perspective. Hence we say Adam and Eve. Look at Adam and Eve. We, we, the, the prayers are Adam and Eve centric. The uh, bride surrounding the, the groom tradition seven times as a unification, as uh, creating, a, a molding or melding or uh, fusing into a single identity. All those things are trying to teach us about what marriage is. 
and uh, and I think this uh, perspective uh, is the overarching perspective that we'll find in marriage and in the uh, uh, in the rituals of marriage. So I want to I want to finish everything here, so I'm going to quickly go through everything. This is all the stuff that I, that I was going to say, you know. One more thing I'll say about marriage. I think it's important for us to realize that there's one area of life that we cannot go alone, and that is marriage. I think if someone doesn't have faith, if someone doesn't believe, it doesn't feel like God's holding his hand, I think it's, I don't know how you could get married, you know. Because I, I believe, and someone may contest this, but I think that if not everyone, almost everyone at some point in the marriage is sure they made a mistake, and sure they married the wrong one. Uh, especially at the beginning of the marriage, because you see incompatibilities, you 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 ru- you run into conflicts, and you, you think it's irreparable. Uh, and if you don't have the perspective of listen, I did everything I can, I did my due diligence, I tried as best I can to make sure this is the right person for me. Everything else is up to God, so to speak. That attitude, I think, will help uh, withstand all the obstacles in having in, in developing the, in, in, in acclimating towards this marriage. I think if someone if someone tries to calculate on their own the odds of marrying someone who is actually completely compatible with them, someone that they could last fifty years uh, together through uh, through challenge, as we know every life is is, is has challenge, I, I think that divorce is inevitable. Uh, speaking about divorce, divorce is significantly frowned upon in Judaism. Uh, obviously, we don't believe that uh, divorce is not an option, but I, w- I would like to echo what the Talmud says about divorce. At the end of Tractate Gittin, the word Gittin means divorce documents, and it's a book talking all about the law and the practice and the ritual of Jewish divorce, and it's very important if someone does unfortunately get divorced, it's important for them to uh, to actually have a, 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 a Jewish divorce because otherwise they're, Jew- they're still married and, and if, if, the, you know, if they marry someone else, that's considered adultery. And those children may be invalidated from marrying... Uh, uh, children of second marriages may be invalidated from marrying Jews because they will be considered bastards. Mamzerim in Jewish law that according to the Torah cannot marry non-Mamzerim. Uh, but the Talmud at the end of Tractate Gittin says that a, someone who divorces his first wife even the Mizbeach, even the altar in the temple, cries. That they being, it's such a sad thing where a couple that seemed that they could have worked it out and seemed like they could have, you know, mustered the courage to make it work, uh, and they got divorced, it's a tremendously sad thing, especially the first wife, because, you know, they, they may have a hard time reclaiming that sense of, of bliss and harmony that's possible with the first wife. Yeah. The Talmud in Psachim says that uh, when a couple is remarried, uh, second marriage for both for both uh, for both husband and wife, uh, the uh, there are actually four people in bed. So it says there's four people in bed because everyone takes their previous experiences with them, and uh, there's certain baggage, emotional, physical. Uh, psychological baggage, baggage that you really can't shed. It's with you forever. So that's why it's important to make sure that our marriages work the first time and to give maximum effort and uh, investment in our marriage and divorce is something that we should try to avoid. Parenting uh, is the uh, paramount 
responsibility of every parent. Uh, for more, see the uh, class Ten Commandments of Parenting, what it means to be a parent. It's a class that we delivered here. I don't want to get to uh, midlife. I think midlife is really when uh, someone's goals and someone's really um, ob- uh, objective in life comes clear. You know, the reason why people have midlife crises is because it's a crisis because they come to think they, they kind of see the, the light at the end of the tunnel and they say, what am I living for? The most common question, the reason why people do things which seem to be uh, out of character at midlife crisis is because they're in a crisis. What's the crisis? The crisis is where they actually come to the point of the realization of I'm living a life, I have only one opportunity, one chance to make sure that I accomplish something. What am I accomplishing? What am I living for? That's the most, that's the common theme of midlife crisis. And in Judaism, we try to avoid that by saying, you, the first question you ask in Judaism is what you're living for. What's the purpose? Well, we, 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 had, we had five classes on this. What's the purpose of life? What's the goal? What are we trying to accomplish on our brief stint on planet Earth? Uh, dying, you're dying like a Jew. Uh, a lot, there's a lot to be said that we have a whole class about what it means to die, what's the definition of death, how do you prepare to die. Uh, the vidui, uh, try to repent a day before you die, is a statement that we say in the Mishnah. The importance of being buried, not cremated, we mentioned that as well. Uh, the idea of death being temporary, resurrection, olam haba, uh, the idea where man will once again be reunited with their body, uh, their soul being reunited with their body, and the world being uh, transitioned into the next phase is something that we mentioned as well in previous classes. Uh, but that's the ideas. Those are the ideas of... of uh, I really kind of ran through at the end there because I wanted to finish on time. I, I like to finish as well at 11.31. And we will see you all on July 13th. It's at Hashem, with the help of God. Uh, wish me luck on my drive today. Yeah. Uh, What's the topic on the 13th? Uh, I don't know. What should be the topic? You tell me, David. I'll listen to whatever you have. Uh, yeah, so whatever. We'll figure yeah. it out. The, uh, yeah. You listed off several things. Yes, we have several things that we yeah, have. you want to do it in rabbis? Uh, yeah, whatever. I don't know. We'll figure it out by then. And, uh, so where, where, where are you driving to? Uh, well, tonight we're driving to New Orleans, then to Atlanta, then to Richmond, Virginia, then to New York. That's the plan because it's like five or six hours per day of driving. But it's probably the maximum that the kids mm-hmm. can handle. When I say kids, I really mean myself with kids screaming. What did you, why did you? Well, it's just no. We got nothing along the way. Oh, we'll do a little bit of sightseeing, probably in each one of the places. And then, you know. So you think that's your journey until the kids tell you? That's the plan right now. So we'll we'll see what happens.